from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Alex Gottdank. Alex grew up in a non-practicing Jewish home. At 13 or 14, a history teacher triggered his curiosity to better understand the source of Judaism and Christianity. Alex studied the Jewish and Christian Bible as a result. Alex ran into the Baha'i faith when he was a senior in high school. Alex wrote a book called Preparing for Christ's New Name to introduce Christians to the relationship between the Bible and the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Alex where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born and raised in Orange County, California, and loved just you know growing up here. The people around me were great, and my family was all here, and just a real nice atmosphere, so I really enjoyed Southern California and the warm weather, I think it would be difficult to be in colder weather for myself, but uh, I did really enjoy it. What was religious life growing up? Well, interestingly enough, my family were non-practicing Jews, and the reason for that was that my father's side was all Jewish, my mother's father's side was all Jewish, but my mother's mother was Catholic. And so one of the things that my parents decided when we were growing up was that we would be taught the basic morals of the religions, but not the actual doctrines. So I didn't grow up with much of an understanding of my faith, of religious faith, until I turned about 13 or 14. And then at that point, I started to look and ask many questions of all my friends and family and started my search at that time. So it was kind of an innate drive for you to search a deeper understanding of religion? Yeah, I, I think what happened to me was that um, as a freshman in high school, I had a uh, teacher who was teaching history, and he did a two-week unit on religious history, and he talked about most of the major religions, and I wondered how they all kind of connected together. So I went down to talk to him briefly and said, you know, I'm kind of curious how did all these things fit together? And he kind of balked. He said, well, I really can't talk about my beliefs. And I said, why not? And he gave me the whole church and state to be separated. And then I explained to him that I'm just seeking information, and I'd like to know. So what he did was he said, okay, I'll tell you. And he told me that he was an atheist, and I said, oh, what's that? <laughs> and he told me that he's someone who doesn't believe in God. And I said, well, why don't you believe in God? And he said, well, all the religions of the world, they fight and kill each other, so why would I be a, have a belief in God? And I walked out of there thinking, well, wait a second. From my experience with my family, in my experience with my Christian friends, and all the people that I've ever met, They didn't say go around to do that. So I thought the source might be different. And that's when I got interested in actually reading the Jewish scripture and the Christian scripture directly myself to see what kind of truths were within it. And because I I think intuitively I didn't sense that that was right. I didn't sense that all religion was bad, that perhaps maybe people were not following the divine teacher's uh, way. But I didn't know for sure, so I started my investigation at that point. And that search began, you said, when you were a freshman in high school? Yeah, right about that time. 
I had a lot of friends who were involved with the YMCA youth group, so they got me involved with that. So I started my search, you know, interacting with a lot of my Christian friends. And then I also had a chance to go to some Christian summer and winter camps and act as a counselor, and I was you know, warmly received. It was very nice. And then I started asking questions, and I would go to a Baptist church on every Thursday and ask my questions there, and I started reading the Bible, and I read it cover to cover. It took me a couple of years, but I was really determined to kind of have a background so that when I asked questions, I'd have a little bit more of an understanding. And did you get your question answered about the interconnectedness of religion? I, when, I in high school? got to a point where I saw the interconnectedness between Judaism and Christianity, and it didn't take long. Once I got to the New Testament, it was right at the very beginning, and I started reading the Beatitudes of Christ, and instantly I knew he was true. I just intuitively I knew that. Now, I couldn't necessarily piece everything together. Uh, I'd already read some of the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled, and they didn't seem to be fulfilled by Christ. But in time, in looking and in, in spending time looking at what, how Christ fulfilled them in a way unexpected by my Jewish forefathers, I came to, to believe him ever more. So yeah, in that sense, the connection. And then later on, I was confronted with the claim of Baha'u'llah, the, the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith as well. And in a similar vein, I started to search and look into his claim to see whether it was true. Before we get into that, did you at some point declare yourself a Christian after you read the New Testament? I suppose if I knew... At the time, the term non-denominational Christian, I might have used it, but I was very young. And one of the things that I was still trying to reconcile at the time was I had this belief in Christ, but I had all my interaction were with, all my friends were from different churches. So I was going to all the different churches, but I didn't know why they didn't all agree. So I didn't actually become a member of any one particular church at the time. So you still sort of identified yourself as what? I looked at myself as being both Jewish and Christian. Okay. Probably is similar to the way that maybe the early Jewish Christians were, you know. So mm-hmm. I had come across the claim of Christ. I came to believe in him. But it was hard. I was still young. I didn't have the background that many of my Christian friends had. So when I would talk to one of them about something, they would say one thing, and I'd talk to another one, and they'd say something different. And I was still in the process of kind of sorting all that out. But the belief in Christ was there, and that was the most important thing to me at that point. Had you run into the Baha'i faith in high school? Uh, yeah, I had a friend. His name is Brian, and he basically told me a little bit about the Baha'i faith. Um, I thought that was interesting as well. And so at one point, I started to look into it as well, and I started to go to uh, Baha'i gatherings and ask questions, just like I did to the Baptist youth pastor. And I started comparing you know, notes and my different understandings of, of Christianity at that point with the Baha'i understanding. And I found it very interesting. Now, were there differences between your understanding and what you were finding when you were looking into the Baha'i faith? Well, I think that at that point I was, I was open to hearing all sorts of people's understanding, so I hadn't solidified mine in a very concrete, solid way. One of the things that I did notice was that, and appreciated, that the Baha'i faith had a real deep respect for Christianity and for Christ. The Baha'i writings even said that to be a Christian is to embody every excellence there is. And I thought that was really attractive. I was like, well, what is this faith that says this? And then when I looked at some of the passages that Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, said about Christ, I was amazed at how much he lauded Christ and showed reverence and love for him. 
and that was very attractive. One of the things that I saw that was really interesting was that the connection between the two was similar to the connection between Christianity and Judaism. In Judaism, the, the Jews are expecting the coming of the Messiah. And, of course, from a Jewish perspective, when I looked into that claim, uh, there were prophecies that Christ did not seem to fulfill. Probably the most prominent one is that he, in Micah chapter 5, verses 2, it says that out of Bethlehem the ruler in Israel would come. And, of course, to me as a Jew, when I read that, I was like, wow, this has got to be about Jesus. This just seems like it's so obvious. But I still balked a little bit because he was supposed to be the ruler in Israel. And I knew that my forefathers did not embrace him because he wasn't the ruler in a, in a sense of a temporal ruler. He didn't rule the, the whole kingdom of Israel. So I had to look at what Jesus himself said to Pontius Pilate, which was a, a beautiful passage when he basically asked Jesus, are you this king of the Jews? And Christ says, and I'll quote this one, he says, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. So in other words, he's saying yes. <laughs> and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And I thought, wow, that, that's the answer. He, he comes as the king of truth. He's not coming as a king over uh, physical land, but a king of, of the hearts of people. So to me, I started to realize that Christ fulfilled a lot of the prophecies in a, in a much deeper way, much more symbolic way. So that helped me understand my relationship to Christ even more as a Jew. And then, of course, I looked at the claim of Baha'u'llah and saw some similarities as well. Like what similarities did you find? For example, I'll give one other prophecy of the Old Testament, and then it's really easy to explain how they're similar. But in the, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people really laud the prophet Elijah because he uh, withstood the priests of Baal in battle over the fact that God is one. He was successful, and, he, and later on, he was walking along with one of his disciples, and a chariot of fire came from heaven and parted them both asunder, and, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind of, with this chariot of fire. And so at the end of the Old Testament, when it said that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, all the Jews were expecting Elijah to return. And so when John the Baptist showed up on the scene, and they came to him and they said, Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. They were pretty confused. And so they turned to Jesus and they said, Well, why hasn't Elijah come? And his response was, He has come. It's John the Baptist. As a Jew, of course, if you're looking physically for Elijah to return from the sky, because you're not expecting him to be in the, come out in the womb of a woman, because he went to heaven in a chariot of fire as a man. And so you're not expecting him to come in the womb of a woman. But the scripture says that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so there's the, the critical understanding is that the, the prophecy was fulfilled in a symbolic way. So when I understood that, and I was starting to look at some of the claims of Baha'u'llah, I think one, probably the maybe one or two prophecies that stand out for that as well would be that everybody knows that, that uh, Christ is supposed to come in the clouds. And yet, you know, everybody's looking out for physical clouds. But the scripture also says that we shouldn't be sleeping because we could become unaware of his coming. Well, how could we be un unaware of his coming if he comes on physical clouds? And so I was open to the understanding of Baha'u'llah when he said that coming in clouds are similar to this. 
any physical cloud would prevent someone from seeing the physical the physical sun. So a spiritual cloud would be anything that prevents one from seeing the spiritual sun, the divine teacher. And so in that vein, when he explained a little bit further, he said that when Christ came, he came in clouds as well, because, for example, people were expecting him to be this magnificent king, and yet he was the king of the hearts of people. You know, so they were looking for one thing, and he, he delivered something different. In the sense of a spiritual thing, Elijah came in the spirit and power of Elias. He didn't come as the person, Elijah. So things were fulfilled, fulfilled in a symbolic, spiritual sense. And so that's the vein that Baha'u'llah has come. And I think that when I talk to my Christian friends, I'm always really straightforward with them, because one of the things I really appreciate with them is that they're very straightforward with me. So I let them know that the claim of Baha'u'llah is that he's the return of Christ, because he's the return of the Spirit of Christ, just as John the Baptist was the return of Elijah in spirit. And then we start our discussion from there. But for me, it was, it was significant because I saw the similarities in how Christ fulfilled Scripture and how Baha'u'llah fulfilled Scripture, and then I embraced him. Of course, it took a little bit of time. I don't jump into things willy-nilly. I take my time. So it took a few years before I became a Baha'i. But I, I, I saw the similarities, and that was one thing that really attracted me to it. You realized that the person accepting the prophecies for Christ you realized that the fulfillment of those prophecies by Christ were actually spiritual fulfillment rather than a literal or physical fulfillment. And therefore, why not the same case be when the return of Christ is to happen? And it also is not a literal return or a literal interpretation of the prophecy, but rather a spiritual interpretation of the return of Christ being Baha'u'llah. Yeah, in large part, that's the case. Of course, the, there were literal things that were fulfilled by Christ and Baha'u'llah as well. So one of the things about, that I've come to, to understand is that the divine teacher fulfills things in, in multiple ways. He fulfills things in a literal way at times because that they serve as guideposts to people to, to see the truth. And then, of course, he also fulfills things symbolically also because there's a deeper meaning to many things. Well, think about this. In all the parables that Christ you know, shared with us, he was trying to get at a deeper meaning of things. So we have to be open to that, and that's uh, many of the prophecies were fulfilled in a much, much more symbolic way like we've talked about, but there were some that were fulfilled literally as well. Can you give an example of a prophecy that Christ fulfilled literally and a prophecy that Baha'u'llah fulfilled literally? Well, yeah. I think one of the things that I found really interesting was in the, the book of Daniel, when Daniel's talking to the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel talks about the, the coming of the Messiah, and he says that he will be cut off after 70 weeks. And we don't have really the time right now to go through all the, the details of this, but as a literal conception, when you take those 70 weeks and you, you realize that for God, one day equals a year, and you add up all the days and, make, and turn them into years, what you end up getting is the exact date when Christ is crucified. And I thought that, you know, not only for me, coming from a Jewish background, but I know that many Christians, when they look at that prophecy, they, they're, they're just amazed, amazed and astounded by the fact that he came in, in such a literal way. So they, yeah, there are some passages like that. In a similar vein, the book of Daniel also talks about the coming of, of Baha'u'llah in uh, chapter 8, 
it's amazing, too, because the two prophecies are, are linked together, and as they're explained, you come to the date of the beginning of the Baha'i Faith, 1844. So I saw similarities in that sense as well, and was really astounded by it. So you said it took a couple of years once you ran into the Baha'i Faith to actually embrace it. What were you going through as you were studying the, the Baha'i Faith? I continued to go to see a youth pastor at, at the Baptist Church. You know, when I get information from the Baha'i gatherings, I would also bring them to him and, and ask him questions and, and see what he thought of those things. You know, my friend Eric always brought me to the Catholic Church, and my friend Jim brought me to the Baptist Church, and my friend Tad, he took me to the Church of the Nazarene, and my friend Chris took me to the Lutheran Church, and my aunt was Episcopalian. And, you know, I had all these different influences from all these different churches, and I would go to all of them just because I was still learning what the, the differences and similarities between each of these were at that particular time. And of course, for me, the essence was I was reading the Scripture for myself. And I think that that's one of the things that I started to notice that a lot of people my age weren't reading the Scripture themselves. They were only listening to what other people had to say. And I actually took the time to read it and was able to converse about it with my friends because of that. You said it took a couple of years. What was the deciding point that actually made you consider actually becoming a Baha'i? Just as when I was coming from a Jewish perspective looking at Christ, I got to the point where there was no doubt in my mind that I believed in Christ. And the same thing happened with Baha'u'llah. It got to a point where, after reading the Baha'i writings, that I came to believe in Him. And I think more than anything, I got to a point where, you know, I was praying to Christ and saying, well, should I embrace Baha'u'llah or not? And His response to me was, of course, He is the fulfillment of, of all that I have foretold. So you draw closer to me if you embrace Him. That made it easier when I got to that point and understood that my relationship with Christ was strengthened by my embracing of Baha'u'llah. That made it really easy. You actually did become a Baha'i versus not really joining a, a Jewish synagogue or really joining a Christian church, but you did join the Baha'i faith. Yes, if you if you look at being a Christian as joining a church, but mm -hmm. if, if you look at it as this belief in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, then I had already joined in that sense. You know, right. I was part of the church. But no, I hadn't actually joined any organization, any church per se, because I was still kind of fleshing that out at the time. Right. But yeah, I became a Baha'i when I was a senior in high school, and it was something that just was so confirming to me that I was still a Jew, I was still a Christian, and I am a Baha'i. And we look at all the different religions as one. And so I wasn't rejecting my roots, but I was embracing them. And I think a Christian would understand this because from a, a Christian point of view, someone becoming a Christian from a Jewish perspective, they're not giving up Judaism. They're just getting it, it being fulfilled in their embracing of, of Christ. What were your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, one of the nice things about that is that my mom was, and my brother were very open to me the whole time. They saw me taking my time, and I wasn't jumping into anything right away, and uh, I would discuss it with them, and they would agree with certain points, maybe not with others, but they saw how much I respected them for their spiritual path. That was something that they 
were very grateful for. And then my father was a little bit different. He was very suspicious, and he really didn't want me to be involved with this at all. Of course, he didn't know that much about it at the time. But one of the things I did with him, and I, and I, I guess this is something that I intuitively felt, was that I just needed to be the same person I always was and let him see that I was a good person, like, like I was raised. And after about six years of being a Baha'i, we sat down one night and we just started talking. And I brought it up. I said, you know, for six years I haven't mentioned anything other than I might be going to a Baha'i meeting to you because I have really been respectful of the fact that I could tell that you didn't really want to know anything about it. And I said, but this is something that's really, really supported me quite a bit, and I would like you to at least acknowledge that. And it was interesting because he apologized, and he said, well, I, I was really fearful for a long time. But through watching you and seeing that you're the same person that you've always been, maybe even better, and you haven't become strange or, or crazy, <laughs> I accept that now. And, and I'm sorry that I didn't trust you at the beginning uh, and trust your judgment because I've seen so many people go into weird religions and things that they hadn't heard before, and I just didn't want that to happen to you. But he's seen me grow up, and you know now I'm a teacher, I'm an English teacher, and I've also been a history teacher, so I, whatever they need at any given time. And I enjoy working with kids. My father has accepted the fact that the Baha'i faith is a good thing, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> now, did he have the same concern as you were investigating Christianity? A little bit, but not as much, because I think that there are so many people in this country, this is really a Christian-dominated society, and he had a lot of Christian friends, so... That didn't bother him nearly as much. After you became a Baha'i, did you elaborate on this correlation that you were making between Christianity and Judaism and then with the Baha'i faith? Yeah, in fact, one of the things that I realized was that so many of my Christian friends then started to ask me, well, why did you become a Baha'i and so forth? And at the time, we had a lot of Baha'i books that were maybe three or four, even 500 pages long on the topic. But... I didn't feel like that was something that people would really want to digest. Because most people, when they ask a question about, well, what is this, and how, what's this connection, they're not ready to take on that much uh, work. But one of the things that I thought uh, was, well, why don't I write a book that's 50 or 60 pages long, that gives some indication, it doesn't you know, give the whole ocean of Baha'u'llah's writings to people, but gives enough of an indication so they can see the strong relationship between Christianity and the Baha'i faith. And so I wrote a book called Preparing for Christ's New Name, which examines a passage in the uh, New Testament uh, where Christ says that he's going to return in a new name, and that's in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 12. And I go through that and many of the prophecies that Christians are expecting for the return of Christ, and I've laid them out in a way that um, does not exhaust the concept, but it whets the appetite. It allows people to take the time to understand that there might be something of value here to investigate. And I've given it to my Christian friends, and the one thing that I'm so happy about is that all of them were comfortable with the tone of the book, because if anything, I want my Christian brothers and sisters to recognize that we love Christ, that we love Christians, that we have the same belief in God, and if there are places of difference, we may have you know, differences in some of the views of, of things, but I don't want the tone of our relationship to be a negative one. And so all my friends have really 
said that, you know, I, I like what you wrote. It's very respectful, and, and it's given me food for thought. And so I've been very happy about it. And now I've got something to give people when they ask, and it's not that long, and so people are not overwhelmed by the, the prospect of looking into it. Where does Islam fit into all of this? One of the things that, in this particular topic, I could go on for a long time, but I'll kind of give a little synopsis. One of the things that the Book of Revelation does is it's a bridge. It's a bridge between the time of Christ at his first coming and the time of Christ at his second coming, because at the end of the Book of Revelation, Christ comes back. Now, the Baha'i understanding is that the return of Christ is Baha'u'llah because he comes in the, in the spirit of Christ. And, of course, I'd have to give a lot more information to, to justify that, but that's the essence of it. Well, the bridge, the, the time between the two, is Islam. And one of the things the book Revelation does, in an allegorical way, is it talks about Islam, and it talks about the faith of Muhammad. A lot of times when my Christian friends talk to me, they, they bring up some legitimate concerns, I think one of the, the concerns is this idea of, is it possible that this Baha'u'llah is either the Antichrist or a false prophet? And what I tell them is, I said, that's a reasonable place to start, but you have to look at what Scripture says. And I think that, you know, one of the things that Scripture says is, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So it's interesting. Whoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. When we look at the fact that Scripture says the Antichrist is someone who doesn't believe that Christ came in the flesh, and that he's not the Son of God. And you look at the Baha'i writings, and they say very clearly, there could be no question that the physical body was born from the womb of Mary. So in other words, he came in the flesh. But then it goes on to say, but the reality of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the perfections of Christ, all came from heaven. And so it lauds Christ. He came in the flesh, but his reality was something so much greater, so much more divine. And then... It goes on to say, as to the position of Christianity, let it be stated without any hesitation or equivocation that its divine origin is unconditionally acknowledged, that the sonship and divinity of Jesus Christ are fearlessly asserted, and that the divine inspiration of the gospel is fully recognized. So one of the things that I do is is I usually start with that and say, from that perspective, it's pretty clear that that Baha'u'llah is not the Antichrist. And as far as the idea of being a false prophet, the guidance from Scripture says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. So I think the, the key is to know what the fruits of the Spirit are, because then you can judge whether the claim of Baha'u'llah is true or not. And so what Scripture says the fruits of the Spirit are would be this. And this comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, 
temperance. Against such there is no law. And I think that's the key, is that it's the fruit of the Spirit in which you judge a divine teacher. And so if you look at the life of Baha'u'llah, which you'd have to do to see if he lived this life, you recognize that as a young man who grew up in Persia, which we call Iran today, in that country his father was a minister to the king. And it was the custom at the time that when the father passed away, the son would take over his position. Well, Baha'u'llah, when his father passed away at the age of, when Baha'u'llah was 22, instead of taking on this position, what Baha'u'llah uh, was doing at the time was he was ministering to the sick and the lowly and the poor within his homeland. And when the king wanted him to step into the shoes of his father, he declined because he saw his ministry as something greater than serving the king, but serving the people. And so, you know, his meekness and the joy he brought people and all this, these are fruits of the Spirit. Now, unfortunately, all the divine teachers, when they come, they experience a lot of suffering. And one of the things that took place with Baha'u'llah was as soon as he, well, one little bit of information to, before I go into that is that just like in Christianity, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Christ. The forerunner to Baha'u'llah is someone we refer to as the Bab. And when Baha'u'llah acknowledged the Bab as the one who was starting this new religion, which Baha'u'llah would be the fulfillment of that religion, he was persecuted. He was thrown in prison. All of his wealth, he was very, you know, he came from a wealthy family, but all of it was stripped from him. And he was taken to a prison. There was three flights of, of stairs underground. It used to be an old reservoir. And 150 of the worst criminals in the Persian Empire were thrown down there. And it was, you know, a filthy quagmire of just the worst things because even the excrement of the prisoners as they were chained to the walls, you know, would come there and, and it was the stench was incredible. And Baha'u'llah was forced to wear a chain that weighed 110 pounds, which was so weighty that it basically forced his, his whole body to the ground, even though he was in chains. And the chain uh, rubbed against his shoulder so much that it bit down to the bone, caused, uh, you know, scarring and so forth. And that was only the beginning of his suffering. He, he was bostonauted where, where they take the feet and they stick them up and they, they hit it with a, with a piece of wood until they're, they're bloodied. And he had this happen to him several times. And then he was basically sent as an exile from Iran to Iraq. And then eventually from there, he was sent to Constantinople and Adrianople in the, Tur in the Ottoman Empire, and eventually to the prison city of Akka in the Holy Land, which is an interesting thing because it fulfills a prophecy in Micah, which says that the Lord would come from Assyria, which is basically Iraq and Persia, and would come to a fortress in the land, of the Holy Land, in, around Carmel. And this is exactly what happened to Baha'u'llah, and he did this as a prisoner. He didn't look at Scripture and say, I'm going to fulfill this himself. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit, Baha'u'llah had, for 40 years, suffered you know, intense cruelty, but there's a reason for it. The divine teacher always suffers, because it basically is a guide to people to look, to see that the fruits of the Spirit lie within him and for people then to investigate his reality because he exemplifies the Spirit and these truths. 
definitely a little synopsis of some of the suffering Baha'u'llah had in his life. He had 40 years of this, and he was steadfast in his faith because at any given point he could have said, okay, I renounce all this, he could have his life back. And uh, he gave it all up. So I think that when we look at whether he's a false prophet or not, based on the scripture, the guidance from the scripture, it's pretty clear that Baha'u'llah is not a false prophet, but he's an actual true prophet. And of course, if I know for myself, I took my sweet time to investigate it further. You know, what I'm giving now is only a synopsis of it. People would have to investigate it further. But all of these things are written down where where people can read about the history and life of Baha'u'llah and of his writings himself. And I think one final fruit that I'll I'll give that I think is was pretty amazing for me as an individual. And I know most of our Christian friends would feel this as well, and the same for our Jewish friends. And that is that wherever you go in the world, you have this connection with people of the same faith, and you look at them as true brothers and sisters. And one example of this for me was when I got a chance to go back to Romania to the northwestern part, which used to be part of Hungary, because I I come from a Hungarian Jewish background. And I went there to see the place where my grandfather had been born. One of the interesting things is I had a friend who said that I could stay with his roommate in the northwestern part of the country because he was going to college there. And so when I went there, I said, well, I'll go stay with him as long as you let him know I'm coming. And he said he would let let him know. And I got there at about 1, 1.30 in the morning because I got off the train and there was no one that spoke English at the time. And I walked down these, these dark steps and I turned the corner and the old Soviet-style buildings, the concrete buildings were there. And luckily at 1.30 in the morning there was one person sitting out front and I walked up to him and thankfully he spoke English. Well, this was a college town, so some of these people did speak English. And he said, oh, you know, who are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for a man named Rod. Said, oh, I don't know anybody by that name. And then he says, oh, wait, wait, do you mean Arafat? And I said, yes, Arafat. And I looked at him and I said, okay, if that's the same person, fine. But inside, I'm thinking, I'm going to go stay with someone named Arafat? It took me back a little bit because obviously Jewish background and, and Arafat being Palestinian name, it was a little disconcerting at first. But when the man came down and I asked him, you know, did, you, did my friend mention that I would come and stay with you? And he said, no. And yet he said, oh, but come in anyways, it's fine. And my last name being Gottdank, you know, meaning thank God in Yiddish, we basically laughed because I found out he was a Baha'i. He was from a Palestinian background. and I'm from a Jewish background. We're meeting at 1.30 in the morning, and we are completely loving being together. We talk and laugh for a couple hours, and then we go to sleep side by side in this little flat in the college dorms. And it just shows the quality of the spirit that people that do not know each other, they come from two groups of people that have been warring and fighting each other for eons, and yet they fully embrace each other. So that's just one example I I sometimes like to share, because for me it was very profound, and I think other people would understand that to some degree, too. You know, we've talked a lot about this, but I'd like to share one other thing that's not really prophecy-related or Christianity and uh, Baha'i faith-related, but... Just kind of one of the things that I did once I became a Baha'i, one of the things that Baha'is try to do is serve humanity. And uh, as a teacher, I had an opportunity to go and teach in a third world country. It was in the Pacific. It was the island of Yap in Micronesia. And I had a friend who grew up in the Pacific, and he told me about this place. 
and that they needed teachers. And I had a chance to go down and spend quite a few years down there teaching, and I was able to teach social studies at the time. And I even got to teach their own cultural history to the kids, which was really fun. But one of the things that the Baha'i Faith tries to do is to serve other people in whatever way we can. And although we don't have missionaries, we do have people that we designate as pioneers that go and they they live the Baha'i life in wherever locality they end up living. And if it's in a place far removed from most places, it's fine. And they just live their life and they serve people there. And I had an opportunity to do that for 13 years and had a wonderful experience. And one of the nice things is that the people of that island came to be very friendly to the Baha'i faith. And a few of them even embraced the Baha'i faith, but most of them just became friendly to the Baha'i faith. And it was because I served at the high school and I did the best I could to just help prepare students to go off to college. And it was a wonderful experience. Now, there's a teaching in the Baha'i faith that starts with work done in the spirit of service. What is that teaching? Well, in essence, it's kind of a beautiful thing that as Baha'is, we look at all of our life as a way of worshiping God. And we do that uh, not just on, you know, one day a week going to a service, but we do it every day. So, you know, we pray in the morning, we pray in the evening, we have an obligatory prayer that we pray in the middle of the day, but it goes beyond just the communion that we have with God in a, the sense of prayer, but it goes to the fact that if you are serving humanity, you're, you're serving the children of God, and you're serving Him in so doing. And so uh, work in this day and age, we look at as one avenue of service and one avenue of worship for God. And for me, as a teacher, I feel that you know, every day that I go to school and teach because I feel like I've, I'm not only serving my students, in so doing I'm making a better place for the world and I'm worshiping God. I want to go back to the discussion about the New Testament for a second. Sure. In the New Testament, Jesus makes the statement that no one can come to the Father except through him. Can you explain uh-huh. for us how that is possible if you are a Baha'i, or any other sure. religion for that matter? Right. One of the things that the Scripture makes very clear, Christ in numerous places says that he speaks what the Father tells him to speak. He says what the, what the Father tells him to say. Again, I go back and I draw from my Jewish roots. In the Old Testament, Moses basically turns to the people and says, I am the Lord thy God. And if you look at just that particular phrase, you're thinking, wait a second, how could Moses say that he is God? seems very strange. Yet if you look at the passage right before it, it says that this is what God told Moses to say. And then Moses says, I am the Lord thy God. So the divine teacher always speaks with the voice of God. The divine teacher basically speaks for God on his behalf. And so in a similar vein, Jesus is making these statements also. And when you think of the fact that, like, for example, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one cometh under the Father but by me, what's basically being said is God is speaking. And he's basically saying, the way to me is through me. And whether that be through his divine teacher, Jesus, or his divine teacher, Baha'u'llah, the way is always the same. 
And I think a way to, to convey that in a physical example or analogy would be when you look at different lights, they have different shapes, different sizes, different colors even, but the actual shining of the light is the same. And it comes from the same source. The same electricity shines through, through that light. In the same vein, all the divine teachers that come from God, they are the same way or the same light to God. And so for a Baha'i, we see Jesus and Baha'u'llah as being the same spirit. And because of that, they are one. And so the way has not changed. It has remained the same. Of course, someone from a, a Christian background would have to investigate that further just because Baha'u'llah makes that claim doesn't mean it's true. But um, I know for myself, I took the time and I looked into this, and I've come to believe that as well. What about all these other religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Islam? Where do they fall into the scheme of things? Because we've only been talking about basically the Abrahamic line of religion. Sure. Well, one of the things that the Baha'i writings say is that the guidance from God has always been given to humanity. And it doesn't matter whether it's been in the East or the West, his guidance has always been for people everywhere. And we have the records of some of them, the ones that you've mentioned, and Baha'u'llah says there are many other prophets that are very ancient that we don't even know about because their writings have been lost to us. But one of the things that sometimes people, they think that all these religions are separate and that they don't come from the same God. But the Baha'i understanding is this, that all the divine teachers always taught the exact same spiritual laws. Like Christ talks about the Beatitudes and, and the Ten Commandments and, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. And, of course, all of the qualities of God that we are supposed to be loving and kind and merciful and just and steadfast and, and all of these things. So all of these faiths bring that same spiritual essence to humanity, but their social teachings are different, and they've been given to humanity at a time where humanity has changed over the years and is ready for something a little bit different. And so they look a little bit different because of the fact that their social teachings are a little bit different. At the same time, the spiritual teachings remain the same, or sometimes there might be a little bit more of a deeper understanding of some of the spiritual truths that were given in an earlier age. So the Baha'i concept is that uh, religion is one, and so we believe that all the divine teachers of the major religions are true. So Zoroaster and Buddha and uh, Muhammad and, of course, Christ and Moses, Baha'u'llah and Baha'u'llah's forerunner, the Bab, Abraham, all of these are divine teachers that have come from God, and they basically, they all teach the same faith. But for so long, humanity was not able to be unified because of the fact that there was huge deserts and oceans and forests and mountains that divided people. In this day and age, though, Baha'u'llah's main principle is the oneness of humanity and the unity of mankind. And now we're at a stage where humanity can actually be united because of the fact that we can, the world has become a much smaller place. In the same vein... Once people recognize that it's all the same faith, the warfares that go on between religions will cease. And this is something that Baha'is um, are already starting to see, because 
if you look at, for example, I know that, that I was looking at some of the facts that relate to the spread of religion around the world. And right now, Christianity is the most widespread religion, with people living in 252 countries and territories. Well, the Baha'i Faith is now second compared to Christianity with 220. And then Islam is third with just a little bit less than that. So the Baha'i Faith has spread throughout the world, and, it's, and the people that are Baha'is come from all various backgrounds, and it's, uh, whether it be Zoroastrian, Buddhist, Jew, Christian, uh, Muslim, they come from very diverse backgrounds and have all come to love and respect and understand that all of their faiths are true. And this is something that was very exciting for me because it meant that I could be at one with everybody in the world. And I found that even when I went to some little place in the middle of nowhere, or uh, Yap, where most of the people there were Catholic, and I felt a, a, a human bond because it's the same faith. It's just that maybe the understanding is a little different, but the essence of it is the same. Now, you said, Alex, that the teacher or messenger of God speaks with the voice of God, and you mentioned how Moses spoke with the voice of God and, and Jesus as well. Do you have an example, and I'm thinking from Baha'u'llah's work, Hidden Words, that would show as an example of Baha'u'llah speaking with the voice of God? What I'd like to point out is that Baha'u'llah, he reveals the Word of God to humanity as well, just like Jesus has done and, and Moses has done. And one of the things that he reveals is, O Son of Beauty, by my spirit and by my favor, by my mercy and by my beauty, all that I have revealed unto thee with the tongue of power and have written for thee with the pen of might, I've been in accordance with the, thy capacity and understanding, not with my state and the melody of my voice. I find this just a, a treasure because God is speaking to us based on our capacity to understand him. And if he gave all that he was and is to us, it would be overwhelming for us. So it gives to our capacity, and therefore we can comprehend it. And that reminds me of the prophecy that Jesus said that I can't reveal all. Yes. So yeah, what, that, what, go ahead. I have many things to tell you, tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he will bear unto you all truth. And so, you know, even Christ made it clear that at, the, at his time that he was here, people weren't ready for all that he had to say. In fact, just look at the parables. He'd say something, and the, and the response of, the, of his followers was always, what? <laughs> huh? You know, they didn't really understand it. It was very difficult for them. And so he's made it very clear that when the Spirit of Truth comes, he will bear unto all of us more truth. And so the Baha'i understanding is Baha'u'llah is that Spirit of Truth that has come. And so we have the capacity today to understand much of what Christ would have told us 2,000 years ago if we had been ready for it. There's a, another hidden word that Baha'u'llah revealed to us that is really beautiful. Again, it's God speaking to us through Baha'u'llah, and it says, O Son of Spirit, my first counsel is this. Possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. I think that when we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, you know, Baha'u'llah uh, is revealing 
God's word to us, and it's basically saying his first counsel is that we uphold these spiritual qualities of God and these fruits of the Spirit, and to be pure and kind and, and radiant of heart. And that's the true sovereignty of a human being, is to embrace the Word of God and to live the qualities that God wants us to live by. The hidden words I would recommend for anybody to, to look at, because they're the, the essence of religious instruction in brevity, is what Baha'u'llah says. They're kind of like the Psalms. They really touch the heart and help us to to strive to lead a better life ourselves. Well, Alex, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, Warren, and any time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alex Gottdank, a teacher who at a young age was driven to understand the basis of Judaism and Christianity in all the world's religions. Alex wrote a book that introduces Christians to the relationship between the Bible and the Baha'i faith called Preparing for Christ's New Name. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.bahaipodcast.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Prophet Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. On the king's highway. highway. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. 
streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.